Good morning. It's good to be here, good to be anywhere. Um, glad to be back. Two sermons I prepared this morning. It's the one I prepared and the one God will enable me to deliver. I'm going to ask you to begin with me this morning by taking God's Word and turning with me to Matthew chapter 25. This morning we stand on the doorstep of a new year. And in a few hours we'll open that door and we'll step into 2024. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to prepare ourselves mentally and spiritually for what God has planned for us in the coming year. And I want to do this by us considering the parable of the talents. Uh, people are drawn to this particular parable because it's so simple and because it's easy to understand, because it's impossible to miss a, the lessons that it wants to teach us. And the parable, Jesus, in this parable, Jesus calls us to begin with the end in mind. Now let me right there help you make a connection with God's Word and, and what I want us to experience together today. Obviously, there will be a December 31st, 2024, unless Jesus returns. Now, when Jesus returns, that is the end. Are you with me? So He is coming again, and we don't know when that's going to be. It could be the next hour. It could be tomorrow. It could be sometime during this next year. But keep that in your mind. That's the end, right? We will also come, if he doesn't return before the end, when we get to the 31st of December next uh, year, it'll be the end of that year. So the title, if you'll look at it, says, Begin with the End in Mind. Now we spent four weeks celebrating the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and boy, did we ever do it upright. Uh, the Christian faith is a singing faith. There's so much joy. We have peace. We have happiness. We have hope. And we've been singing about all those things for, you know, four weeks. And again, this morning, we've continued singing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. It's been a spectacular time. I mean, there's been candle lightings. We, remember we had four weeks where we did the Advent candle up here, lit a different candle, each one in anticipation of Jesus coming. And then that final candle celebrating the fact that He is here with us. He has come. That God loved us. We sang about all these songs. We uh, had the candle lighting service on Christmas Eve. Uh, glorifying uh, God for the light of the world. Jesus who has come to save us. And it's been a wonderful celebration. I mean, I don't know any place where they did it uh, any better than we did it right here. And Tom, thank you and the choirs and all those that took part and that in helping us celebrate that. But with that in mind, I want us to understand that's just the beginning of the story. Jesus did come. God did send a Savior. He was born. But it's just the beginning of the story. In fact, as I was preparing to preach this word, it occurred to me that as I reviewed my understanding of the New Testament, that there are some basic passages that talk about Jesus' first coming. 
I mean, you go to Matthew 1 and 2, you get a good dose there. You go to Luke 1 and 2, you get a good dose there. You go to John 1, you get a different look of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But beyond that, we have some references to the fact that Jesus was born, that he was God's son who was sent into the world. But by and large, you know what you find in the New Testament? It's not talking about his first coming, it's talking about his second coming. I find that when I look through every book of the New Testament, there is an announcement or an allusion to the fact Jesus is coming again. There are more references to the fact that there will be a second coming than there were a first coming. Now, he surely fulfilled the prophecy, and he did come a first time. And there are all these assurances and promises that he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. And so the Scripture tells us what we are to do while we wait for his return. And you need to understand that when we drop down in Matthew chapter 25, that every text has a context. And when you think back, what you understand is that this is part of... A, a discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples, and it's in response to a question they asked back at the beginning of chapter 24. And the question they ask is, you're telling, you know, they're trying to get their arms around the fact that he's leaving them. He's told them, I'm going to leave you, but I will be coming again. And the question that they ask is, well, what will be the signs of your coming? How will we know when you're coming? And so Jesus begins to answer this, but he answers it by teaching them through telling some stories called parables. And these are called parables of the kingdom. And so when he speaks to us this morning, he's talking to us as his children. And he says to us, I want you to know what you need to be doing before I come. I am coming again. And I want you to know you need to be busy. And so in this parable, he calls us to live in anticipation of his return. I don't know anything that's more challenging for me to do, day in and day out, than to live that day as if this could be it. I mean, one day runs into another day. I mean, how many years was it now since Jesus was last with us on this earth? He, he promised them then... I don't know when Jesus is coming. I do know this much. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. We're one week closer this week than we were last week. We're one year closer this year than we were last year. Jesus is coming again. And so we look at his word. We listen to his words to us. And this is what we hear him saying in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, <laughs> are you following the story? After a long time, 
I think we've already fulfilled that requirement. It's been a long time. The master of those servants came and they settled accounts with him. And he settled accounts with them. The man who had received the talents approached. The one who had five talents approached. He presented five more talents and he said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've returned five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You, you were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached, and he said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went off, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I hadn't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and it would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you and along with these who have gathered here in a place of worship dedicated to your glory and to your name. We come seeking you as the one who is able and can comfort the afflicted. But we would also confess that there is a need for you to afflict the comfortable. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the excuses we made to cover our selfish choices. That you could shake us free from the love of this world. Lord, grant that we might become risk-takers for the kingdom of God. That we might make some bold moves, not the safe ones, the go-for-broke ones. Lord, grant that we may enter into the freedom that comes from living on the edge with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do not interpret the parables of Jesus. They interpret us. And this morning as we look at this parable, I want us to examine this one story that has one point. The point of the story is begin with the end in mind. 
Just one point. But I want us to look at that one point from three different aspects of the story. I mean, we're going to look at the story in three different ways. We're going to look at it from the vantage point of our talents, our investment, and our reward. So first of all, let's look at the matter of our talents. What are talents in this story? Well, you use the word talent in modern English today. It can mean many things. But in biblical times, when Jesus uses this reference here, he's talking about a large sum of money. Originally, the word talent became a weight measure, and it was used for persons to weigh out in a specific amount of silver or gold. It would be called a, a talent of silver or a talent of gold, and it would be equal to a certain weight called a talent. Most scholars say that a talent of silver would represent approximately 16 and a half years of salary for a laborer or a soldier. 16 and a half years, one talent. Any way you figure it, that's going to be a huge amount of money. And so we look at our story and we realize here you've got a man with five talents. And um, that's comparable to 82 and a half years of salary. You've got another person who's got two talents. That's 33 years of salary. And then you've got one man who's given one talent. That's 16 and a half years worth of salary. That's a lot of money. What we're talking about here and what this is all intended for us to see is that the master's a wealthy man. He's got bukus of money. I, this past week, actually two weeks ago, actually went online. I looked up top ten wealthiest people in the world. Elon Musk is at the top of the list. Um, he owns Tesla. He owns SpaceX. He owns X, now the uh, old Twitter uh, exchange. And I looked up and it says that he is worth, his current net worth is $257 billion. I don't think his kids wake up wondering what are we going to have to eat tomorrow. But now what I want you to understand is that the master in this story is Eli Musk squared times 10. The three men in this story each had plenty of money to invest. And he was not lacking in money and he was willing to share. Verse 15 tells us that each man was given a different amount. And I want you to look at the phrase that appears in that 15th verse, according to each one's ability. Now, who made that determination? The master. Why did he do it that way? Because he wanted to. <laughs> I mean, when you are wealthy and you are willing to share with others, you can do it however you want to. You don't ask for permission, and you don't have to explain how you did it to anyone at any time. He is sovereign over that money, and he can do with it as he wills. And I got to thinking about that, and I realized that in my own lifetime, 
there's been a growth and development in my understanding of, of my world and my appreciation for this world in which God has created. You know, when you remove yourself from the center of the universe, are you with me? A whole lot of things open up to you. You begin to see that we have this wonderfully creative God who's created all of these individuals equally. They're all of equal value to Him. They're all uniquely gifted. All have different opportunities. And you come to terms with the fact that God is not obligated to treat you like anyone else. You know, in this room this morning, you have more than others and you have less than some others everyone in this room this morning everyone listening to my voice will have more money and talent and opportunity and more strength and better health and better connections than others and we'll all have less of those things than some others in life, there are always people above us, there are always people around us on our level, and there are always people beneath us. Always. No matter where you are. You're above some, you're below some. Now that leaves us with two choices. We can either gripe about our situation and use it as an excuse, or we can accept it, we can start where we are and do what we can. Playing the comparison game is useless, and yet we are sucked into that world and that environment today. In our social media world, you look at pictures of other people, and you see the smiles and the happy pictures and all the things that people have around you when you drive around and you look around and you begin to compare yourself to other people. And then every advertisement that comes on television makes you feel like, you know, if I just had that, I could just be so much happier. Or if I had a bigger house I would be one you know I'm tired of this dumpy place that I'm living in I just need a little bit more a little bit more let me ask you a question when is a little bit more enough and I think what this is calling us to think about this morning is I mean who knows why Jane got more and Alice got less of who knows why one woman is born in El Salvador and another is born in Brussels? Folks, only God knows and he's not telling. And every moment we spend trying to figure it out or worrying about it, that's a wasted moment. Now, we're not all equal in terms of abilities, but I want to tell you something that's pretty amazing. We're all going to have opportunities to do something with what God has given us this year. It's not what you have, but it's what you do with what you have that makes the difference. And so as Jesus speaks to us, there's this matter of our talents. And secondly, there's the matter of our investment. Now, all three of these uh, servants were judged by how well they manage someone else's resources. When the master gave the talents to the servants, they and he knew that it was still his money. 
I mean, go back and look at verses 20, 22, and 25. That's where you have the three servants talking. All three of them, when they make reference to this money, they refer to it as the master's money. Then in verses 14 and 27, what you have is you have the master coming along and he confirms, yes, what you say is true. In fact, it is my money. It's my possessions. So each man clearly understood the master was loaning the money to them with the understanding that one day he was going to call an accounting for what they did with it. And so let's take just a moment. Let's look at the first two servants. One started with five, he ended with ten. One started with two, ended with four. Which one had the greater increase? Neither they were equal. Both had a hundred percent increase on what they were given. Both doubled their money. But the case of the third fellow is different entirely. He started with one talent and he ended with one talent. And in between, he buried the talent in the ground so he wouldn't lose it. And he didn't do anything with it. Now, clearly, all three men knew the master was coming back. They all knew he would demand an accounting. The first two men, so it seems, focused on the fact that their master, besides being a fair man, could also be very generous. They knew that if they did a good job, they'd have a great reward at the end. But the third man lived in fear. And so he didn't do anything at all. He played it safe. He ended up losing everything. And in the end, the one talent he was given was taken from him and it was given to the man who earned ten talents. So what is his problem? His problem is he thought he knew his master, but he didn't. And because he didn't know him, he didn't trust him. And because he didn't trust him, he did nothing. And in the end, what he had was taken away from him. And the scripture tells us in verse 30 that he was cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In biblical terms, he ended up in hell. Now, those are shocking words, but I see no other way to interpret this parable. The third man was called a good-for-nothing servant, and he was rejected by his master. And he represents those phony Christians who never give themselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. You never put your trust in him for your salvation. You invest all you have in yourself. You know why? Because you're living for the things of this world. And those who live only 
and entirely for themselves who have no time for interest in the things of God will wake up one day in hell because they're good for nothing servants who did not know the Lord. And that's a solemn warning for us today. And we do well to take it seriously. Having considered the matter of the talents and the matter of investment, let's look at the matter of our reward. Now we turn to the positive side of the story. And the positive side of the story has to do with the rewards promised to those who faithfully use their talents in the service of Christ in His kingdom. And this is why you came and what you came to hear about this morning. In the parable, the master says the same thing to the first two servants, didn't he? In verses 21 and 23, he says the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Look at the statement. First of all, notice there's a commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Second, we notice that there is a promotion. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And third, we see there's this invitation. Come and share your master's joy. Now, the question came to me this week as I was reading over the passage. And I had to ask myself, well, what kind of reward is he talking about here? It says that Jesus promised to put them in charge of many things. What does that mean? And I think there's a good answer to the question given in another parable that Jesus tells. It's very similar to the one that we've read this morning. But let me remind you, it's not identical. It's similar, but not identical. But I want to call your attention to the fact that over in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the ten minus. Again, we have a master who shares money. And again, you have three servants. And I want you to understand that what Jesus says to those who were faithful in that story, he says to one he promised who earned double the money, he promised to give him ten cities. And to the one who doubled and came up with five minas, he gave him charge over five cities. Now what's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the coming millennial kingdom when Christ himself will reign on the earth. And he says those servants who have been faithful will be, some will be put over ten cities, some will be put over five cities. That we will actually reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. One day we're going to share in Christ's triumph. And that's an astounding thought. We're going to rule with him in the kingdom. And if we've been faithful in this life, you know what? He's going to give us cities to rule. There's an enormous truth here. And the truth is this. What we do now determines how we will spend eternity. So begin with the end in mind. 
just a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Before we do that, I want us to spend a few moments in consecration. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you in your own heart of hearts to offer yourself to the Lord totally. Totally. Enough of this stick your toe in the water. I mean, I'm talking about get on the high dive and just go for it. And consider praying this prayer. Make it your own. Lord Jesus, here I am. Use me any way you see fit. This morning I come to you right now and I offer you all that I have for the service of your kingdom. Open my eyes where you are at work in my world. Some of you have a parent or family member who may be coming to live with you this year. There's your opportunity. Some of you are moving or have a new job or a new office. We all have neighbors. Lord, thank you for putting us exactly where you want us at this particular time. And where we are, we want to be all there. In 1981, when President Ronald Reagan was nearly assassinated, his pastor from California came to visit him in the hospital in Washington, D.C. His pastor, Pastor Don, took the president's hand. He asked him, Mr. President, how is it with you and the Lord? And Reagan answered, Everything's fine with me and the Lord. Well, how do you know? And President Reagan said, I have a Savior. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a Savior? If you don't or if you aren't sure, I urge you to place your life in the hands of Jesus Christ right now. Trust Him as Lord and Savior. Ask Him to take away your sin and tell Him, Jesus, give me a new life. You come to Christ 
and your life will never be the same again. <clears throat> I bring this up now because we're about to observe the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is there's nothing magical about the elements. They're symbolic. They don't convey any saving power. But we are told that we are to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus and what he has done for us. And before we do that, I want to read a passage of Scripture that aligns perfectly with the theme of our message this morning. Which is, begin with the end in mind, right? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, listen to this, until he comes. Jesus is coming. This morning I'm going to ask you to take the Lord's Supper elements and with me. Take the wafer on the top. Make sure you peel it from the correct end. I'd tell you left to right, but I couldn't tell you where, how you're holding yours. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your body that was um, came into this world, how much you laid aside. Um, you did not lay aside the fact that you were the Godhead a part of the Holy Trinity. But what privileges you laid aside when you left heaven to come to earth, to our dirty world, because you were not afraid to get involved with us so that we could be saved from our sins. Lord, we thank you that you came, took on human flesh, died a physical death, rose a bodily resurrection, coming again, a visible return. And we celebrate that this morning, and we remember the sacrifice you made for us with this bread. Take it and eat it in remembrance of Jesus. Lord, you took two very common elements that were available, bread and wine. And you blessed them and gave them new significance. 
This cup represents the covenant, the new covenant in your blood. A new covenant. The old covenant was one in which you elected and chose a people and they were bound to you through that relationship, bound to obey you, and yet they disobeyed repeatedly. Oh Lord, how I find myself in that number. Even when I want to do the things I know you want me to do, I don't do them. I oftentimes do things I know not to do, I do them anyway. And then there's a whole host of things I know to do, but I'm not doing them. And I think about that old covenant, how you would withdraw your spirit from those who disobeyed you, or you would rebuke them severely. And it wasn't because you hated them, it was because you loved them and you wanted them to see that you are their master. And yet today when we project ourselves into that picture, we realize that the new covenant is based on better promises. The promise that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord Jesus, thank you that because of your shed blood on the cross, we have the assurance that we have been forgiven our sin, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we will spend eternity with him. And so we come offering ourselves to you now as we remember your sacrifice for us. Take and drink this in remembrance of Jesus.